Want to advertise your business in a cost-effective way? It's time to give podcast advertising a try. Research shows a high rate of podcast listeners made a purchase as a result of an ad they heard on a podcast. Visit podbean.com slash brands to launch a cost-effective podcast advertising campaign in minutes. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N dot com slash brands. your horrific true crime podcast. This is episode 19. I am Meg and my co-host and dream interpreter Connie is going to tell us about David Edward Moust today. All right. So tonight we're going to once again keep it homegrown and Midwest local. Uh, David Edward Moust was born on April 5th, 1954 to George and Eva Moust in Connellsville, Pennsylvania. Is Pennsylvania was, Midwest? No, no. He moves. This okay. <laughs> I was like, hey, uh, that seems like East Coast, right? Kind of? Yeah, no. <laughs> After, I, like, no, everything takes place in the Midwest except for his birth. So. Okay, okay, okay. Go on, go on. I'm sorry. <laughs> he was the second oldest of four kids, and his mom said that it was literally like like he was born a little off. When he was two, he would try to throw things at his sister's head when she was a year younger than he was. But my kids do that too. So, you know, I I take that with a grain of salt. When David was around seven, his parents divorced and his dad split. It only took about two years before his mom said that he was just too much to handle. And I read in many different sources that his troubled, abusive upbringing aided his rage and his desire for violence. His mom was described by a social worker as being disturbed, psychotic, needy, narcissistic, and that she was functioning marginally. And she herself even spent a month in a mental hospital. Oof, gotta love a narcissistic parent. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. When you, when you know, that doesn't sound like a recipe for a nurturing mom. And being raised by a narcissist alone can lead to huge emotional trauma and make it rough to be a functioning human. And if you add in all of this and maybe his predisposed need for violence, it's like adding gas to a fire. Yeah, props to sane people with narcissist parents. Yeah, because it's rare. And hard. Yeah. When he was nine, his mom had him committed to a mental hospital in Chicago because she said that he had tried to set his brother's bed on fire and later tried to drown him. Yeesh. When did they move to Chicago? Or did she just try to send him to Chicago? No, after the divorce. Oh, okay. They moved to Chicago. It was reported that in the institution, it was like filled with children who were not necessarily there because of their own mental illnesses, but more often than not, it was because they had family members who were mentally ill and who couldn't or wouldn't take care of them. And like any nine-year-old, if you just dump them in a mental hospital, David felt like he was dumped there and his mom rarely came to visit. During, during home visits with a social worker, his mom said that she had put him there because she didn't deserve his lying, stealing, and out-of-control behavior. But she couldn't be specific when probed and later she admitted that she just didn't want him at home. Eesh, now, well, he probably didn't deserve her exactly. being out-of-control behavior behavior. Yep. His brother, Jeffrey, said that prior to being institutionalized, he would randomly be violent for no reason. In one instance, his brother 
said that they went to a park just to play one day. Uh, David had a baseball bat and he saw a squirrel like scampering away. David followed the squirrel and beat it with a baseball bat that he like beat it with the baseball bat he was carrying just for fun. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a lot. Um, His brother Jeffrey also would later say that he believed David was molested at a young age by a relative and that's what led ultimately led to his destructive behavior. Oh, do we find out more about that later? No. No? There's never any specifics on the relative. Like who it was? Yeah. And it never says everything I've researched. It didn't say anything as far as whether that was confirmed or not because David himself never confirmed that. Okay. Just that his brother thinks that that happened. Yeah. And I read that in like a few different places. You think maybe his his brother said that because his brother was? I don't know because we'll get into like his rage because he, his victims were men. Okay. So we'll, I'll get into that in just a second. Um, So his brother said that he thinks that everything was because he was molested, but his mom said that she just thinks her son was born that way and it's maybe a combination of the two and so you know if someone already had the natural instinct and then something traumatic happens to them it's kind of just going to increase everything yeah his mom said to a reporter that quote i did love him i put up with him for a long time i didn't ask for them to take him i would have kept him at home and tried to treat him like all the rest which is literally the opposite of what yeah, the institution like, and she, the social worker said so you know she like send him to an institution yeah and, like say i don't deserve off. this yeah okay and i read in one source that he that David looked a lot like his dad and his mom hated that. So she was a scorned ex-wife and she have a son that looks just like the man who scorned you. And if you're already all of these different, you know, narcissists, yeah, yeah, crazy. crazy. It just, you know, it's not good. David did an interview when he was in prison and he said that his mom used the mental institution as an excuse to have him locked up and that she, after the divorce, she had taken him to stay with his dad, but his dad returned him the next day. And so oh, wow. she told Dave, yeah, she told David, you might as well run away because I'm going to get rid of you one way or another. Yeah. And then she did. So when David was 13, he was released from the mental institution to a boy's home. He described his time in the mental hospital as a children's paradise. He said that they played all day. He had no education, no social skills, but that he shouldn't have been allowed to leave the mental hospital because he was destroyed by the loneliness of the institution and he was too damaged by that point, which this is going to be a trend. He, the low, the isolation that he encountered at such a young age, he, it's almost like he thrives in this isolated situation because that's all he knows at this point. Okay, so he so really struggles. he enjoyed the institution because it was I the kid's think dream was, or he I was think lonely? Like, I'm a little confused. So I think like the paradise part of it is like he played all day. He didn't really have to go to school, you know, that, but he was by himself. Like he had no social skills. So when he was put in a situation where he had to use those like normal social skills, he really struggled. Okay. Okay. I think I understand that. Yeah. Um, while he was in the mental institution, his mom like would visit at first, but they the visits started to decrease over time. You know, we hear that story a lot. So sadly, like he would just stand at the window during visiting hours, like waiting for her to come. And like when she didn't, he would like talk to the staff and he would always try to re- reassure himself. He's like, oh, she's just probably feeling ill or, you know, her back has been hurting. That's probably why she didn't come. Aww. And during all of his time at the institution, he had no incidents of serious misbehavior. They didn't, he never did the lying, the stealing, the out of control behavior that his mom had reported. 
reported as like the reason why she committed him. He is genuinely described in reports as an appealing, sensitive, and reliable child, but deeply disturbed by his parents' rejection and preoccupied with the threat of abandonment, which is like textbook abandonment issues, like textbook. Yeah, which is why they probably were like, where you can't stay in the mental Mm -hmm. institution, we're going to put you in a boy's home. Yep. Um, But he really struggled in the group home. He said that all the boys would play a game called knockout. And it's literally what it sounds like, just beating the hell out of each other because they just wanted any type of affection or touch because the staff couldn't. So not only did they not go to school, the staff couldn't hug them. They couldn't touch them. And they couldn't even do like words of affirmation. They couldn't tell them they loved them. They couldn't tell them that they were doing a good job. What year was this? This is in 1967. So sheesh. Yeah. I mean, Um, I don't know why I'm surprised it like. Like it yeah, it's pretty, I, 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 pretty yeah. in line with that time period. Which, you know, basic psychology, a kid needs like all of those basic needs to be met. If a person's basic needs aren't being met, they aren't able to tend to the higher needs. So, I mean, you've taken psychology, the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, basic needs are food, water, warmth, and rest. If those needs are met, then a person can tend to the next level, which is safety and security, which I'm going to get into a second where those needs weren't met for him. And then if those needs aren't met, they can't reach the next level of like belongingness and love. And then, you know, that's where relationships and friendships are. And then those needs aren't met. Then they can't reach the self-esteem, self-actualization. So it's like literally the person, like the definition of a person being like emotionally stunted. Yeah. And it's not his fault. Yeah. And it's not his fault. And, you know, a lot of times it's not the fault of, sorry. And a lot of times it's through no fault of their own, but it can affect a kid all the way to adulthood, which is like exactly what happened to David. And, you know, we always say you can feel bad for a kid and empathize with him and then still think he's a D bag for all the stuff that he does later. So I do feel bad for what he went through as a child. 100%. It doesn't excuse some of the stuff he did, but you know, it, like set you up to be like, oh, okay, I can see why he was the way he was. Yeah, it's not one of those situations where they're like, their childhood was fine. They're just nuts. Yeah. It was like... Yeah, and we see that too. So it's like, it's we get a we whole montage of stuff in this <laughs> podcast. So um, I had mentioned that his safety and security needs didn't get met at the boys' home. Uh, David said that when he first got there, he was approached by another boy who wanted to have sex with him. And he said, like, I didn't want to do it, but the boy threatened to tell everyone that I'd been in a mental hospital So I kissed the boy, but it left him feeling like guilty, ashamed. And that feeling, the feeling of guilt and the feeling of this is wrong is what you like is the emotion that he like pulls from whenever he starts to go crazy. Like, yeah. And he mentions it over and over. He references this specific incident. That's why I said I didn't find anything about like him being molested as a young boy by a relative, but he talks openly about this situation, which is like why I was like, you know, I don't know if he was or not by a family member because he, I would think he would bring that up as much as he brings this up. Yeah, but he was obviously coerced into some like yeah sexual situation yeah. when he wasn't mentally prepared for that. Yeah. So in 1969, while he was still in the group home, it's the first time he had like, other than like the squirrel situation and like the things that his mom talked about, which again, his brother never said that like, hey, he tried to drown me. He tried to burn me in my bed. So I don't... Don't know if that's true. Yeah, I don't know. That's just what his mom was saying. So his first like actual like him being like, yeah, I was violent in this situation. Um, His friend, he had a friend named Eddie. And for no reason at all, he just attacked him, like 
beat the hell out of him. And I guess like at the end of it, he like told Eddie, he's like, hey, I'm sorry. And Eddie was like, okay. And you know, that's that. Like, well, that was like the experiment. little broken boys. They're just going to be yeah. like, it's fine. I'm used to it. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. Then later that year, so like he's 15 now, um, he choked another boy. His name was Daniel with a rope while the two of them watched TV. And he kept a diary for pretty much his entire life, which is rough. Like I read some passages out of it and it's rough. Um, So he said, I could not stop. I had no reason to be doing this to him. I told myself, this is enough. And I quit. And then I let go of the rope and Daniel fell to the floor. And he said, it's like I was trapped inside of me and someone else was trying to kill Daniel and I could not stop. So, yeah. Yikes. Yeah. When he was 16, um, between 16 and 17, he left the group home and like he literally just like bailed. He talked about how he went to his first like Chicago Cubs game and was like, oh, yeah, this is gnarly. And then like went to work. His uncle had a construction company in Wrightsville, Georgia. So he went down there to work and his uncle said like he was a skilled worker, but he got fired because he crashed the company truck. What? So he... How? Was he like... A no, he just... Nope, nope, he wasn't. He just crashed it. And the uncle was like, yeah, no. And fired him. So... All right. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, man, that's like a one strike rule. Like, how are you going <laughs> to say? He's such a good worker. He was very skilled. But you know, he crashed the truck once and nip, yeah. gotta go. All right. Fair enough. So David headed back to Chicago and he's like, you know what? Let me give my mom another chance. I'm going to try and live with her. Of course. Yeah. And at this point, she had remarried and his mom did not want him to live at her house. When he got there, he, he said that his mom got a knife and told him to get out of her house right now or she was going to stab him. What the? F- yeah. And I guess later she apologized to him and was like, yeah, I'm sorry, but I just don't want you in my house. Because... So- of the guilt she felt or because he was actually like I still think it has something to do with how much he looked like his dad maybe because now he's just like getting older and you know we see it a lot when you have like narcissistic people like that if you have this like quote former family and you've like isolated part of it and like you build this new family for you it's for yourself it's like you don't want it's like she's like forgetting that that part of her life yeah you ignore all of the bad things that ever happened because you didn't deserve I didn't deserve. <laughs> so it's a time of the Vietnam War, and she did what any mother would do who would rather stab her 18-year-old son instead of having him live with her. Send she him drove to him the to, military. She drove him to an army recruiter where he enlisted. He did basic training at Fort Lewis in Tacoma, Washington, and then did AIT like around Monterey Bay, California. And then he was stationed in Frankfurt, Germany as a cook. And honestly, he was described as like pretty like normal serviceman. He uh, bold. And I guess he was like a really gnarly bowler. He had an average of like 297. Whoa. Which is like crazy. All, right. I, All I, that I makes weebled. me want to do is like go bowling. Like now I just want to like be like, maybe I could get a pretty good average. Well, you know, we have the uh, Brady Wee Bowling Alley set up in our house now. <laughs> <laughs> wee bowling. I've never wee bowled. It's pretty. I we do it quite a bit. I don't have a two ninety seven average. My husband's closer to like one eighty something. I bowled like a one oh two, and that was like yeah. I probably bowl like a sixty seven. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> I start drinking, and then I'm like, yeah, I'm gonna bowl, and then it, the balls are just flying everywhere. <laughs> That's what it's like. The last time I went to a bowling alley, I like tried to like bowl my ball. It must have been too light because it bounced two lanes over. (laughs) And then I just like looked at those people and just gave them a little like wave and they sup. We're like this girl. No. Sorry, I put my balls in your lane. (laughs) 
<laughs> Stay in your lane, lady. All right. Well, we're <laughs> we digress. Sorry for the yabber. <laughs> So you think like if he had this sense of like isolation and like abandonment, usually when you're in the military, for the most part, you develop like a group of friends and you're like, these are my friends or, you know, brothers, blah, 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 blah. (laughs) I mean, my husband still like talks to all the people he was in the Air Force with. So you probably think like he has this, you know, sense of camaraderie. Things should be going better. Things should be getting better for him. And sadly, that's not the case. In 1974, while he was stationed in Germany, so he had made this friend and he was a 13 year old which obviously very inappropriate because he's 18 yeah you know that's or 19 at the time so obviously not he shouldn't have been but like he made this friend um they were he was the son of an american couple who was like living over there well david beat him to death what yeah so i'm gonna give you some deets about that so he's 18 and he beats a 13 year old to death yeah and this is how he described it he wrote okay so a month before the kid's name was Jimmy McClister. And a month before that, like before the murder, he woke up in his room to find Jimmy, who, like I said, they had become friends like previously. Jimmy was naked on top of him and that he too was naked. And again, I told you like he had this like altered sense of like homosexuality. So it upset him very much. Uh huh. So a month later, him and Jimmy are taking a ride on this moped and they ride to a nearby forest where David tied Jimmy to a tree and beat him with his fist and then beat him with a board. Yeah. And right afterwards, he said he was angry with himself because like he didn't know what to do with the boy and like obviously like he was going to die. So he picked him up to take him deep into the woods to hide him. And by deep in the woods, he went about 10 feet in. (laughs) Yeah. Sorry. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's like I couldn't even like, I was like 10 feet. Like, okay. I can see that from where I'm standing. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Jimmy died in his arms. So he lay him down in a bomb crater and he just put leaves over him to hide him and like what's weird is like again he did this really big interview while he was in prison and he said in the interview that he this is like so freaking weird like what he said that he looked at jimmy when they were like hanging out and was like when his hair grows out i'm gonna kill him what yeah and like hair grows out yeah like he had really jimmy had really short hair and like when he grew he was like when he grows his hair out, i'm gonna kill him and he did which is like like I don't know if it I I don't know like when he, I read that, I was like, what the hell? Like, what? Um. So when Jimmy's body was discovered in the bomb crater, David's defense lawyer argued because obviously, like, the parents were like, hey, this is the guy he's been hanging out with. Yeah. And David's defense lawyer argued that Jimmy died after they crashed the moped because teens threw a screwdriver in the spokes. What teens? Well, there were no witnesses. So it's kind of like a... And he was like, yeah. this was a court martial. Like, it's not like real. Kind of like, like a weak defense there, bud. Yeah. But it wasn't in, like, an actual court of law. It was in, like, the military court of law. Oh, I didn't know that that was a thing. Or, like, I guess I kind of knew. Haven't you seen A Few Good Men? You can't handle the truth. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So he was court-martialed and convicted of manslaughter and larceny because he said it was an accident and they had stolen this moped. And because there were no witnesses in the case, his death was ruled an accident. And David was sentenced to four years at Fort Leavenworth, but he was paroled after three years even though he begged them not to parole him like please let me stay in jail yeah he i'm a threat to others yeah that's he wrote in his diaries that he cried every single day 
stay because he didn't want to leave. He knew that he wouldn't do good on the outside and he knew that he was a danger to people and he didn't want to leave. But they're like, nah, that's fine. You can go. So he moved. Yeah. In 1979, he moves back home to Chicago and he has a friend that visits him and randomly his friend's sleeping and David's like, you know, I'm going to stab him. <laughs> you know what I'm going to do? Stab this guy. You yeah, think? Fr- you think it is like stemming? Like maybe he feels an attraction to them, and that's. Like- I do because it never says because all of his victims are men and. Everything I read, it's never like his lover or, you know, it's always like a friend, an acquaintance. And that's how David described them. So I think that he has these attractions. And then when he's realizing it, it's like halfway, you know, like he's like, oh, what am I doing? And then it's just like he's mad at himself. Yeah. Then it's rage, which I don't know if it has to do with like the time period, like if it wasn't or if he just had. Yes, absolutely. And also he had such like a traumatic experience experience in the boys' home that he associated it with a negative feeling instead of being like, hey, it's okay that I feel like this. It was more like a I feel like this because this kid. Yeah. Oof. It's it's rough. So David was charged with attempted murder because the friend didn't die. He was charged with attempted murder and he said like he lied on the witness stand and he was found not guilty. All right. He's got some pretty loyal friends that are like, no, it's fine. He's fine. <laughs> Looking at you, Eddie. Uh-huh. So 1981, he decides, you know what? I'm going to find the boy who molested me and I'm going to make him pay for what he did. What? Yeah, which is why I'm like, okay, he associates him being gay with this negative situation that happened to him, which we know is not the case, but that's what he sees it as. So he went to went to this kid's home and they were like, no, he's in jail. Sorry. And he just happens to look around. He sees this 15 year old walking down the street and he's like, all right. This is it. So he lures 15-year-old Donald Jones to his car and he decides, I'm going to kill him instead. Because he couldn't get the other kid that... Yep. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's not really logical, but none of these things ever are. Mm -mm. Yeah, that's true. And he says that he stabbed Donald in the stomach and in the most heartbreaking thing, he says that Donald kept saying to him, I'm only 15 years old. Please do not kill me. Oh. So earlier you said he had a... Is it a hunting knife that he's using to do this? No, it's just like a knife. Like he, it doesn't ever like specify or it doesn't even specify if it's the same knife. Oh, okay. He's just, I don't know where the hell he's getting all these knives from. He's just a stabber. He's a cut co rapper. (laughs) Sorry. Shouldn't laugh, but like if you've ever had a cut coat knife rep come to your house, you know exactly what you might also want to stab something. (laughs) So he drugged Donald to the water where he drowned him, and he said that he believed the molestation in the boys' home was the cause for all of his bad behavior, which is why he went looking for that kid in the first place, which is what we already said. Mm -hmm. But he decides he's like, Wait, I just killed somebody, I need to get the hell out of here. So he moves to Texas, but he couldn't shake like his rage that he had. So that same year, he was arrested for stabbing another teenage boy in a hotel room that he had like lured there with like drugs and alcohol. So again, I think what you said is correct. He is having this like intimate time with these boys, which is still, I mean, they're still teenagers. And also, yeah, they're very young. Yeah, he is a pedophile. We're not going to like shy away from that at all. Um, And so he like, he spent 
uh, t- he was convicted for attempted murder again because, again, this teenager didn't, he didn't die. Um, but while he was serving his time in Texas, he was extradited back to Illinois because he was convicted of Donald Jones's murder. And at first, he was deemed mentally unfit to stand trial, but eventually he pled guilty for the murder and he served 17 years of a 35-year pr- prison sentence. <laughs> Did he get out on good behavior? Well, one second. Uh, <laughs> most of that time he spent in a psychiatric hospital. But he, again, he knew he was a danger to society. He wrote a five-page letter and was trying to petition to like stay in supervised custody. He wrote, I believe in these laws and I believe that any person who harms or murders another person should never be free to live in society again. I used up all my chances to be free and I would like to be paroled to the Sheridan program, which is like the supervised program, and live the rest of my life there. A five-page letter. The um, No one ever responded to it. Oh, but like... Yeah, he also had a prosecutor say that he was a danger and that he shouldn't be released. But both of these requests were met with like, meh. And he was released in 1999. So here you have a man saying, please let me stay in supervised custody. I am a danger to society. I know that I am not good. And a prosecutor being like, hey, he shouldn't be let out. And he, so they did like a fact sheet for the prison. And on that fact sheet, he was listed as this inmate is most likely the most dangerous dangerous inmate that you will house. And the state of Illinois was still like, go ahead, YOLO, you're free. There's a reason why Chicago is technically the most dangerous <laughs> city yeah, in the country. Yeah, if that's the way they're, I'm sorry, but if that's how they're handling things, like, holy crap. And like, no mistake, like, it's not like it's going to be a big surprise to the ending of the episode, but this is going to turn out to be a huge freaking mistake on their part. Yeah. Huge. He's telling them. He's like, hey, yeah, I'm he's dangerous. Yeah, he's telling them. And it's not the first time. And that is, we talked before we started recording, like, I don't, I hardly ever have situations where I'm like, I am sad for this person. But he consistently was like, I cannot be free. Please let me stay. I will do bad things. And people are like, no, you're fine. It's okay. You're cured. You're cured. Go ahead, live your life. Oh, man, that sucks. Yeah. So he got out of prison and he moved to Oak Park, Illinois, where he lived for two years with no types of incidents. There weren't weren't any incidents. And even when he was asked about there being more Vic, he's like, you could tear up all the floorboards in this house. You're not going to find anything, which spoiler alert for future crimes. (laughs) Oh, boy. So, yeah. In 2001, a friend of David's reported that or reported to the police that David had hit him over the head six times with a metal pipe but the friend once again a male declined to press any charges so david just went about his way (laughs) and that's where like it's i'm just not gonna hang out with them anymore (laughs) yeah we're fine it's okay which is another reason like what's weird to me is he has so many situations where he very well like could have murdered these people and he doesn't so it's like like, is he like doing that on purpose or like subconsciously because you're right like he's stabbing these people they're not dying. Mm-hmm. He like one the ones that did die, he had to like drown or he like beat them to death. Like I'm just I'm a little confused yeah, why I'll so many to- of the people he's trying to kill aren't dying. I'll get to that in just a minute. I'll explain all of it. Okay. So in 2002, David moved to Hammond, Indiana. So we made it home. Hey. <laughs> he worked at a trophy shop called Trophies Are Us. <laughs> 
cute. <laughs> they called him Crazy Dave around the neighborhood. Yeah. Which checks out. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy Dave. Like, okay, we get it. So on May 2nd, 2003, a 19-year-old boy by the name of Nick James was reported missing. He worked with David at the trophy shop. David had convinced Nick that he was part of a group that like ran drugs and he promised him he could pay him big money if, if Nick joined this like elite drug running group. He beat Nick to death and wrapped his body in plastic and buried him under the concrete of the basement in the home that he rented. Very John Wayne Gacy. Yeah. And he was just like he was compared a few of the articles as like he if he wouldn't have been arrested like this is another John Wayne Gacy situation. Yeah. Had he just been a little bit more charismatic. Yeah. <laughs> clown. Ah. So that summer, he befriended a couple of other neighborhood boys. He supplied them with alcohol, marijuana, money. They met at the pool and he was like trying to be like this like cool like A type <laughs> guy. Crazy Dave. <laughs> and when I when we post pictures of this guy on our Instagram, you'll see like it's very like mullet. Looks like he's rocking a white jean jacket and pit vipers, sunglasses. <laughs> Come on like, down to Crazy Dave's trailer for some free skunk. That's what I yeah. picture. Yeah, that's what he looks like. <laughs> Perfect. But September of 2003, those boys were also reported missing. Shocker. James. How many were there? Rag the two boys. Oh, there were two. Three. No, I missed. I didn't hear it. So these two boys are reported missing in September 2003. Um, James. Ragani, who he was 16, and Michael Dennis, who was 13. So again, he's definitely a pedophile. There's no doubt about that. Um, They were last seen on September 10th, 2003. He lured them to his house. Same thing. Like I said, he was supplying them with like weed and alcohol. He strangled both boys. And once again, he wrapped their bodies in plastic and buried them under concrete in his basement. <sighs> So yeah. So this Hammond is up by like Crown Point. So that's like small. I'm pretty sure that's like small area, right? Yeah. Crown Point's like small town. It's, I mean, it's comparable. It's not like tiny. It's like a Muncie or a, oh, okay. You so. know, smallish, smaller than like Indy. Po police start to piece together like the common denominator in these kids' disappearances is David. It's like, all right. It's not hard to piece out. that in. Yeah. It's like we got Crazy Dave hanging around the pool and these boys are coming up missing. Crazy Dave worked at the trophy shop. Like, you know, it's like very black and white police work. So on December 5th of that same year, so 2003, they began, they came, they served a warrant and they started excavating the concrete in the basement of the house that David rented. On December 9th, under freshly poured concrete, the bodies of James and Michael were found. And the next day, a third body would be found, which is the body of Nick James that had gone missing like the previous spring. The next day he was arrested and charged with the murder of James Ragani. And I he had admitted to the police that he strangled James. So that's why he was the first one. He was only charged with the murder of James at first. Oh, because they the had no two bodies they found. No. no. I mean he will be, but he was it's not one of those situations where only one of, you know, we see that a lot. Mm -hmm, yeah. Where it's like they have a whole list and it's like, okay, they they were charged with and tried for one. So that's that's not the case here. During his arraignment hearing on December 13th, he asked Judge Kathleen Sullivan to represent himself during the murder trial. <laughs> so he can be like, can you just 
put me away. Yeah. I Yeah. But he entered a not guilty plea. What? Which is like insane. And like, like I said, even though he told police, yeah, I lured him to the house. September 10th, I strangled him with a rope. So I'm not, I think that the judge was like, yeah, he's crazy. Like he's, we're not firing on all cylinders here. He, Like I said, he was eventually charged for the other two murders and it took, like we see often, two years for his trial to begin. The day his trial was to begin in um, 2005, because they were pursuing the death penalty, obviously. It's Indiana. Like, yeah. <laughs> that's what you're getting. Um, they were pursuing the death penalty, but on the day his trial was set, he pleaded guilty to all three murders and was sentenced to three consecutive life sentences in isolation with no possibility for parole for the murders of Nick James and Michael. Good. Good. Yes. Yeah. Like, yeah. So is um, <laughs> he in Indiana still? Because I mean, like we were teenagers when this was happening. I didn't, I never remember hearing about it, but. But wait, there's more. Of course there is. So James's stepdad said following the trial that he, David, is a predator on society. He'll be in jail for the rest of his life. Somebody's going to kill him and I'm happy. I look forward to the day that he dies. The Lake County prosecutor said what we're all thinking and he penned a letter. He was like, if David was held in custody for the murder of Donald Jones, like he requested to be and the prosecutor recommended, then James, Nick and Michael would be alive today, which... I'm sure we all agree. Duh. Yes. Um, he had requested the isolation. That was like part of the agreement because he knew if he went to like the general population, he'd be murdered for what he had done. And he was like, I deserve to be. So I complete. It's like, I deserve to be, but also like, I don't want to be <laughs> type thing. <laughs> Uh, so feel fast that. forward. Yeah. January 2006, literally 10 minutes after they told him like, hey, we're about to move you to the state prison because like right now he's held in like the Crown Point area, uh-huh. but they're about to move him to the state prison. David hung himself with his bed sheets from the bars in his cell. He was found taken to the St. Anthony Hospital in Crown Point, but he died the next day. He left a note where he admitted to the five murders and he apologized to all their families. He wrote, maybe with my death, the families and the people can go on with their lives and not waste energy wondering why I was still alive. And this is like... Like it's in- surprising, but kind of like I'm kind of like good for him. And also like, well, is that awful? I don't even know how I feel. Investigators and prosecutors said that David was very rare in the sense of like he genuinely felt remorse for what he did. Like Yeah, like he did not want to yeah. be this person. No. And like psychiatrists, I call it, he was interviewed multiple times and they were like, oh no, this isn't like fake. Like this isn't fake. There, he's not like, like, I mean, he is a monster. Pretending to be sorry. Yeah. But he had genuine remorse and they found a diary where he, the whole thing was nothing but like regret, self-loathing and like rage for what had happened to him as a child, what he did as an adult. Again, it doesn't make, it doesn't excuse his behavior. No. At all. Obviously, I still feel awful for the victim. But this is, it's so sad that once again, we can say it's this so is It's so sad like, that other people like mess this kid up to the point yeah. that he was like a menace to society. Yeah, he was someone who was dropped off at a mental institution and the loneliness and isolation made him this monster and he, that he even recognized himself that he was. Every turn, every time he got in trouble, he was trying to stay locked up. Like I said, when he was locked up at Fort Leavenworth, he wrote in the diary, like I cry every day. I don't want to, I don't want to get out. I know people are safe with me in here. And most of the times when you see like cases for serial killers, there isn't this remorse. 
Yeah. Do you know if any of those, um, like if any of the Indiana families like took action against that other court for letting them out, even though they recommended he stay? I do not. I know that um, because of this case, it led Indiana public officials to pursue a state amendment requiring for a violent offender registry for convicted murderers. So in addition to like, you know, like you have the sex offender registry, like they have the violent offenders registry. And it was because of this case. Oh, okay. So yeah. And so it's like Indiana code section 11-8-8. It's like there are four types of offenders, the sexually violent predators, offenders against children, sex offenders, and then they added the violent offenders person for people who are convicted of murder or voluntarily voluntary manslaughter. So they get like two enrollment terms. It's like either 10 years or like life. So he, I mean, that did come from it, but that's good. Yeah. But it's still like, this is, it's also awful. It's awful. It's awful. It's awful. But like, uh, I, we mentioned many times tonight, I think that he had such big feelings that he was gay and he could not handle them. And that's where like his rage came from because, you know, again, it's like Midwest in the 60s and 70s. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, it's it's rough. And if he if he didn't have if he was isolated in this like mental institution and he didn't have the social like opportunities to realize that he was gay before he went to this like boys home and he that's what he associated with. And that's where I mean, he was pissed like for his entire life he was pissed and it's like like he spent so much time in isolation that when it came to him being like in the real world he was like oh shit i can't do this yeah but i that's see why, why you ha- feel like i see why when you said like makes me kind of in my feels a bit i under i get it i see why it yeah and like the whole remorse thing i think is why he had so many attempted murders and it wasn't like all the way it's through. like he stopped himself like what the hell am I doing? But but also I'm awful. so angry. Yeah, it's like another system failed. System <sighs> failed. Extreme. And you know what? His mom can suck it because she also failed. Yeah. And his dad, like, where the hell were you, bro? Yeah, that sucks. Yeah. So that is the case of David Edward Mouse. And how many? So in, at the end, how many victims did he end up with total? He had five murder victims. And then like plus the ones he didn't kill? Yeah. And I think that was... I mean, if we're not counting just stabbing, if we're yeah, counting murder and the like two. attempted murders. So he had the two in the boys' home. He stabbed his friend, beat his other friend with a pipe, stabbed the kid in Texas. So he has ten victims total: five murder, five attempted murder that we know of. <sighs> wow. Yeah, it's a lot, and it's not like real like gore. It's it's insane. That at every point he's like, "Please lock me up," and they're like, "No, please go kill people." And then you find his diary full of like, "Why am I doing this?" Yeah, it's like a manifesto of like, ah, but yeah, that's all I I love it when we get to the end of one and I have no words. It's always just like, yeah, wow, what a bummer. (laughs) Uh, Should we shout out Bulgaria in this one? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Hey, Bulgaria, what's up? What's up, Durmstrang? What's up, Victor Crumb? Uh, Or number? This is your fifth best true crime (laughs) podcast. 92nd all around podcast. And also we were down three. So at one point we were number two in Bulgaria. 
Let us know if you're listening from Bulgaria, please, because I, that's gnarly. I want to air five you from around the world. Yeah. And also Thailand, we're ranked like 120 there. So we're we're moving on up. I feel pretty good about it. I think it's cool. I, yeah, I think it's dope. <laughs> uh, yeah. But I don't think we have any like business to take care of because we just had an episode a few days ago. So <laughs> Yeah. But- thanks again for everyone hanging out with us through the, the blizzard of 21. And we appreciate everyone who listens to us babble at the end because we really try to like get right to the case and like not do like 20 minute just well, that, gabbing. That was the other thing. We got our first we got our first negative review and they said too much, too much yabber. yabber. <laughs> <laughs> yabber. Which I laughed about. Like I read it because it was like someone from Australia. Like I read it. I was like, you know what? I am normally a very self-critical person and the anxiety of me wants to be like, oh man, but I'm also like, no. This is also a talk podcast. <laughs> Yeah, like one, we're talking too. Like, I feel like we would be doing a disservice to the podcast if we didn't intervene with interject our personalities. Yeah. And we never like ramble on. I don't say we never, but we we save our the majority of our rambling until the very end. So, like, honestly, if you get to the end, we're like, all right, that's it. We're going to chat for a few minutes and then like you leave before that. Like, I'm good with that too. So, Uh, I just thought it was, I thought it was funny. And also, like, you know that you're doing okay when people are like no yeah no we have i have to tell them that i don't like it like yeah so i was like I, hey what's up I, because i just like randomly googled our podcast that's how this whole thing started and i found like this whole website where we're showing like our rankings and stuff and I'm, man this is gnarly people are listening to us because i don't think we never really like <laughs> talked about it but when, when we, we first started, started this was- podcast yeah we were sitting on my back deck drinking white claws and i was like we should do a podcast and it like it evolved over like a few different things of like what we were talking about and it's like look the only thing I really like is like true crime and serial killers yeah there's Meg's no like, way I, I, I would have never had a true crime podcast without Connie like <laughs> <laughs> it took like it's still sometimes like other than like your very traumatic personal true crime yes, case. Yes, absolutely. It still sometimes is like funny to me, like listening to you tell, because if you know Megan, she is like the most sunshine and rainbows person. So like listening to you tell these, I'm like, that's my girl. <laughs> but that's, I like kind of was like, we should do this, Meg. We should do it. And then we just like, Meg was like, I can tell my story. And I was like, I wasn't trying to exploit your childhood trauma, but that would be dope. <laughs> like... <laughs> Uh, so we, what's we appreciate your childhood drama. That was hilarious. Um, we are we really appreciate all the people who do take time to leave reviews, like good or bad. I mean, we'd prefer them to be good, yeah. but <laughs> if you have nice things to say, please say them on Apple Podcasts. Go ahead, and leave us five little stars. <laughs> if you're in a different country, you can leave negative reviews because those don't pop up on ours that I see. I have to search for them, <laughs> but please don't. Oh, I didn't know that if they are in different countries, they pop up. Yeah, because I looked for this one. I was like, I haven't seen i i love when we get reviews because i really like hearing people be like hey this is like this is dope like you guys are doing a good job and also we we can take some criticism i understand that you know we're not Megan perfect can take some criticism. <laughs> i only cry a little my <laughs> my love language is words of affirmation so please <laughs> don't don't criticize her and think of like how 
uh, also like Meg has been doing so awesome with like all of her TikToks and reels and really like killing the social media game. And I suck at that. It's not something I'm good at. So I just I'm think so they're fun that I have. Like, I think it's fun. Even if you follow like my normal page, I do them all the time because I think they're fun. I have like a whole list of like friend requests. Like I have, I just, I don't do it very often. Like I don't, I, I used to, it's funny. Cause like, if you knew me in high school, like I used to be like really outgoing with that stuff. And then like it's like I hit my 20s and 30s where I'm like I have anxiety I can't (laughs) I can't and like I start to do it and it really like makes me sweaty and so when I do them be thankful because it took me two months to work up to it but I that's why we that's why Meg and I make a good team because she's so awesome at that stuff oh that was nice and I mean like you're a tv star from like Montel and everything so you're (laughs) used to the spotlight (laughs) Because that one time when you were on Montel when you were 17 years old, <laughs> you're a delight. I love it. We love doing the podcast. I love doing it with Connie. We're going to smother you with our, our, our goofy, girl tribe of two. Our goopy love. You're going to listen to how much we love each other and you're going to like you're it. You're going to like it. Because not only do we have the two of us, but we have birthed children in, in order similar ages. <laughs> so we have a dynasty. Like this isn't our kids are going to have podcasts. <laughs> Hopefully not true crime podcasts. We need to like expand. That way we can cover the market, you know, cover yeah. different markets. Although I just think uh, it's like YouTubers when they like they have kids and then they get their kids channels and then their kids make more money than them. That's what we're trying to that's what we're trying to make happen here. <laughs> that is so weird to me, though, because my son watches a YouTube family. Oh, yeah. We watch um we watch the Adleys. That's what we call them. But it's like yeah, Shondura's we, and Adley. Yeah. Uh, I can't even think of this. I don't even know the kid's name but it's like this like little fa- it's like a whole family and fp something or i don't know it's <laughs> i don't FP know that kids one. <laughs> it's like fb kids they just like play pranks and like it's very wholesome but i doesn't it make you kind of feel like a shitty parent when you like yeah. watch your kids i'm like oh man i'm not sorry i don't play that hard with you guys oh my son <laughs> has told me many times that that's his favorite family including <laughs> our own. oh yeah that's why uh that's why my daughter wants to move to Utah. <laughs> well, I don't think that's going to work in her future living arrangement <laughs> that she's already committed to. <laughs> oh, so silly. All right, guys. Well, thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with something else that we haven't planned yet. So I have planned it, but I'm not telling you yet. Yeah, that we haven't announced. We, we've been doing this. Like, we don't really tell each other what we're doing until, until it's happening. Yeah. That's it for today. Thank you all so much for listening to Gruesome True Crime with me, Connie, and Meg. We appreciate every single one of you. We truly do. If you actually like us and you're not just trying to seduce and murder us, you can follow along or see extras from the show on our Instagram at Gruesome Podcast. Or if you want to tell us our skin would make a nice lampshade, or if you have follow-up questions about the episode, follow the form on our website, gruesomepodcast.com, and email us. We love hearing from you guys. You can listen to Gruesome at the links listed on that website, or you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever else you normally get your podcast fill. Thank you again. Be sure to subscribe. Check your back seat before you get into your car. And remember that on Wednesdays, we're we're gruesome. gruesome. Bye. Bye.